So uh, it is currently December 4th, and uh, like I just said, <laughs> you're tuned into 88.7 KBVR Corvallis. It is just after 7 p.m., and on a Sunday, that can mean only one thing. It's time for another episode of Inspiration Dissemination. I'm Steve Friedman. And I'm Adrian Gallo. At Oregon State, we have more than 4,000 graduate students in 80 different programs of study. And here on Inspiration Dissemination, we feature the research and personal stories of one of these students each week. If you're a graduate student at OSU and interested in coming on the show, or you just want to find out more about all the awesome things going on at Oregon State, check out our blogs at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration, where you can find out all about our upcoming guests, as well as links to our Twitter and Facebook pages. Inspiration dissemination is recorded live, and should they occur, occur, any opinions expressed on the show are those of the hosts and their guests and do not necessarily represent Oregon State University or this station. Tonight, we are joined by Katie Jejic from Integrative Biology. Katie, welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Why don't, uh, you know, tell us uh, what your research is and uh, who you work for. Yeah, uh, I am a fourth-year PhD student in the Department of Integrative Biology, and I study uh, how uh, climate change is impacting corals, so really looking at how corals may be able to acclimate and potentially adapt to the changing climate. Very cool. Um, so this is obviously a very topical thing. Yes. Um, everyone's talking about climate change. Is it real? Is it fake? Does yes. it? Who's <laughs> causing it? The hot, hot topic. I'm, I'm assuming you believe it's real. Yes, I absolutely believe it's real. <laughs> um, so, so you know, you mentioned that how it's affecting corals, and there's a, there's been a lot of news about this. And you know, when we first met you uh, earlier this week, you know, I brought up the obituary to the coral reef, and you immediately were like bad news yeah so could you tell us about some of the evidence that like why climate change is real and how it's affecting the corals yeah so uh this has been happening for decades now i mean ever since the 70s we're seeing this phenomenon called coral bleaching and this is really when um so the coral lives in association with a marine algae called zooxanthellae and um they're you know in a symbiotic relationship so both partners benefit from it but when the temperature gets to you know really hot temperatures that algae starts to produce toxins, and that's really harmful for the coral. And so it's no longer providing a benefit. And so the coral's like, well, hey, you're no longer serving me any purpose, so you have to leave. And so it eventually kicks it out. And when that algae leaves, that's when the coral turns white. And so that's where we get that term coral bleaching from. And um, so th we've seen this for decades now, but in the past you know, decade or so, um, the severity and the frequency of these bleaching events has really increased. And so this has really drawn our attention you know, as researchers um, and scientists. So, You know, and I think uh, I, I read this a couple days ago, but the Australian public was polled. And I think I remember two thirds of the public had called coral bleaching a national emergency. Yeah, a lot of people are really tuning in to what's happening, especially at the Great Barrier Reef. There's so much attention. Uh, I mean, the entire reef is, you know, bleached and um, and certain areas, you know, more than 20 percent of the reef is already dead. Uh, and so this is this is a huge concern, especially for a lot of people that live on the coast. This is where they get their livelihood, their food. So, yeah. You know, let's talk a little bit more about that. So, you know, here in the Pacific Northwest, we don't have, you know, beautiful corals where we can go dive everywhere. So, you know, me being a mountain man and I think uh, Steve being a real <laughs> mountain man with his beard. You know, uh, what, what, kind of, what kind of benefits do coral communities provide? 
Yeah, uh, corals provide a lot of benefits um, in terms of you know protecting coastal uh, you know uh, habitats. So they provide a lot of wave energy barriers. Um, they mitigate storm surge um, for a lot of fishermen. You know fish live within the reef and so um you know these fishermen go out and that's where they get all their fish from so if there's no reefs there these little fish don't have a sanctuary or a place to live um they also provide some medicinal services so a lot of um you know species of corals can potentially provide um a medicine um and then let's see what else. Uh, tourism is a huge part of corals. Um, a lot of countries around the world get majority of their money from tourism. Um, and then, like I said, protein. Um, you know, billions of dollars come from fish. And, you know, if reefs weren't there, then fish would not be available. Pro- protein like the protein we eat. Yes. Okay, in terms yes. of fish protein. Yeah. Gotcha. <laughs> um, you know, you just mentioned the Great Barrier Reef, and I think that's what most people think of when they think of coral reefs. Yeah. But they don't just exist around Australia, Mm-mm. right? So they're all over the place, and, and a coral reef is, is not just this one you know, kind of spiny-looking organism. There's a lot more going on in there. Yeah, I mean, uh, the, the Great Barrier Reef is probably the most diverse, and especially in that area in, in the Indo-Pacific, that's where the diversity of corals is just great. Um, you know, you're talking about 800 different species. But corals live here um, around the United States in the Caribbean. Um, they live, you know, uh, off the coast of Africa, India, things like that. So they're all over. Cool. And, you know, you just mentioned a lot of places that are near the equator, right? Mm-hmm. So so they mostly live in warm temperatures. Yeah, they are found, um, you know, right at the equator and then about 30 degrees north and south of the equator. So the tropical and subtropical zones. And I guess one more question related to that. are, are Is the water, is the ocean temperature rise more significant in that area than the rest of the ocean? Um, Well, it all has to do with the summer average. And so uh, when we talk about bleaching, we always talk about it around a threshold. And so in the summer, obviously, that's when the temperatures are getting warmer. And uh, if the temperatures become greater than the average, then that's typically when we start talking about this bleaching threshold because they're they're seeing a temperature that they're not used to. But this is happening everywhere. Okay. So now I'm curious, are, are there any uh, outliers in, in these corals that have, uh, you know, experienced these kinds of temperatures and have kind of made it through skin and bone? You know, are, is there any evidence to suggest that maybe there are some adaptive qualities in these corals? Absolutely. Yeah, we're we're really trying to look at some of the winners and losers, as we call them in climate change, that we're seeing some corals do uh, a lot better. Um, They're really tolerant to the high temperatures, whereas other coral species um, tend to be more susceptible. And so they're the ones that are starting to get weeded out and are are actually on the threatened list. Um, But yeah, and so that's, you know, one of the big questions in the research right now is, is why? Why do we have some tolerance and some susceptible species and what do they have? that, you know, potentially could lead to adaptation. So that, I mean, you came on the show once before. Mm-hmm. So for the, for listeners that uh, haven't been listening for, you know, three years, <laughs> I know we have a lot of very devout listeners out there. Um, <laughs> but Kate, you were on here about two years ago. And at that point, you were your fourth year PhD now. So you were second then. Yep. So you've, you've come a long way. Yes. So I what hope it, so. <laughs> I, I, I'm sure you have. I listened to the old episode, definitely. <laughs> um, could you talk about a little bit what you found in those two years? Yeah. So when I first came in, I was really interested in the topic of acclimation. So seeing corals acclimate to a temperature that they're not used to, but you know, it's a little bit below that bleaching threshold I was talking about. And so it's really 
you know, asking what's that mechanism of acclimation that could potentially lead to adaptation. And so when I came here on the show two years ago, it was me just talking about the things that I was interested in doing and the potential research projects that I was going to be taking part in. Uh, but now I've, uh, I'm almost done with all of my experiments, hopefully, Ooh, knock on wood. Well, yeah, it feels good. Um, and so, yeah, I've been doing a lot of, you know, acclimation and tolerance experiments um, on a variety of corals. So you're really looking at some of the uh, classic tolerant species and susceptible species and, you know, seeing the same things, um, but now really digging down into the mechanism. So looking at the genes and the DNA that, that may be allowing um, uh, those corals to be classified in that way. Now, maybe I'm getting too far into the weeds. Maybe I should say too far into the corals. <laughs> in, in, in either way, uh, I'm, I'm very curious to see, you know, do you have an example of what kind of mechanism or, you know, what kind of uh, a- adaptation that one species has shown uh, that could potentially, uh, you know, help maybe focus some of the effort uh, for other species that are highly susceptible to these increases in temperature? A great example uh, actually is in the in Hawaii. So this past year we had a huge bleaching event, well the last two years really, and so a lot of the coral species around Hawaii um, bleached. But there were some, you know specific species of corals that were doing really well. And so a lot of researchers took those corals into their um, to their labs and started to do some breeding experiments uh, and trying to see if they could breed a really tolerant um, species. Um, but, yeah, I think that's the best example I have right now. Um, yeah. And Does that like, answer your question? Like in all things science, uh, it's never easy, right? It's not like mice no. where they reproduce. No. Sorry, Steve, where they reproduce, you know. Every couple months, you get a whole new. Yeah, mice yeah. is not the the like the quick organism in Neither science. Neither is corals. <laughs> They're terrible. Fungi, though, let me tell you. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> we always sit around the table when we're dreaming up experiments. Like, man, only if we were fungi. Yeah, <laughs> yeah. Um, so you you mentioned this winners and losers thing, and then you know we kind of went into how you're trying to find the winners, right? Mm-hmm. And and this lab in Hawaii took them, and they're trying to breed them. Is there any idea of can they then? All right, you've bred them in the lab in like a little mini coral. Is that is, yes. it, is that what happens? It's like a little reef in the in the yeah, lab. Yeah, they're cool. like little fragments of corals. Yeah. Um. So can you then take them and transplant them and get them back outside? And how do they do? Yeah, so there's a lot of restoration organizations that already exist around the world, uh, particularly in the Caribbean. Uh, But yeah, you can take a small fragment and kind of glue it back onto the reef. Uh, And it's really important that that first, you know, couple months when people transplant them back out, you make sure that they're surviving, that, you know, they didn't get knocked over or something came on and munched on it. Um, But yeah, it's absolutely possible. And people are already doing it and trying to find the tips and tricks to help other people do it. Uh, But yeah, absolutely. Cool. Um, so (laughs) first of all, glue them back on. Yes. Yes. (laughs) So Elmer's is that, are they in the coral (laughs) reef business? Uh, I can't say Elmer's is, but there is definitely a glue that we use. It's called coral glue. Okay. Yep. It's a, it's a type of glue that you can seriously just cement the coral to a substrate. So a rock or a piece of ceramic tile. And then as soon as it gets wet, it just hardens and acts is a perfectly good substrate that's yeah. very cool uh maybe elmer's that's a good opportunity for them to get into nudge, the nudge. philanthropy business <laughs> um <laughs> that'd be great pr yeah, yeah. uh so and going on with this adaptability um you mentioned looking into the genes and actually looking for so is that something that's happening um you know i for the longest time thought coral reefs were just this inanimate like 
massive stuff. I, I guess yeah. it's not very scientific. You know, <laughs> I've come a long way also. Um, so they have genomes. We're just starting to assemble them. What's the status of that work? Yeah, so, I mean, you guys kind of hinted at it before, but corals are not a model organism. I mean, they are very complex organisms, and trying to assemble their genome, or in other terms for my family that's listening out there, you know, this this collection of all their DNA, uh, it's incredibly hard. They have huge genomes, and we're really not at that point where we have one for the species that we're using. Uh, for some species, we're getting there. There's some draft genomes that are available, but, um, yeah, we're still using a lot of other technology uh, yeah, like linkage maps and transcriptomes and stuff to answer the questions. I want to take a quick step back because I have a sibling listening and she <laughs> studies rocks, not necessarily biology. So I'm curious to know uh, how, what is the benefit of knowing knowing the genome? You know, what, what things can be elucidated from that? Yeah, so you can start looking at, you know, the functions of genes and how they're contributing to the animal, like what they're doing and, and how they're helping the organism, you know, maintain itself and just function as a whole. And so we can start looking at genes and how they, you know, play a role in, for instance, you know, thermal tolerance. And, and if some species have those genes being turned on at certain points or if they don't and how that may be, that may be able to be fed into adaptation. So knowing that information is really really helpful. Interesting. So you kind of have to have that base map to find out where all the little exactly. treasure chests are. And once you have those little, you know, X marks the spot, that could be like a gene that yeah. could be, you know, turned on at a, a high temperature event in, yeah. in a way. It's like a blueprint, right? So you're really trying to find, you know, specific areas that, you know, may be contributing to the response. So that's really what we're trying to do. If you're just tuning in, you're listening to 88.7 KBVR, and this is Inspiration Dissemination. We're on with Katie Jedjik, and she's telling us uh, what the outlook is for the coral reef in the world. The coral reefs. Is that uh, coral reefs? Coral reefs, Okay, yeah. I want to make sure. <laughs> um, I like to learn uh, every week on the, on the show, too. Um, so, Katie, you know, you're, you're, you're now in your fourth year of your PhD, and you've told us a lot about how we're learning how – the corals are adapting to this changing climate. Um, what? Hopefully, the, at least. Hopefully. How, <laughs> there's some. They're winners. Yeah. They're winners, right? And we're trying to, to push up the winners yes. and help them win better. <laughs> right? <laughs> so um, what, what's the next step for both the coral researchers and maybe you as a coral researcher um, in this battle? Yeah, great question. We, uh, I mean, the coral research community is huge. Um, this past June, we came together for a huge conference, and there's over um, 2,500 of us. And so we're really all trying to find that answer to the question, you know, can corals adapt? And I think a lot of the research that we're putting out there is giving evidence for, yeah, they potentially can. Um, but the next question, the follow-up question to that is how quickly. So can corals, you know, keep up with the rate of climate change? And so I think that, you know, keep we're, we're still trying to, you know, find that answer. But I think, I think we're getting closer. I think, you know, with the genomes that are starting to come out um, and just some of the, you know, av the available resources that we have, you know, maybe in the next couple of years we'll be able to really pinpoint that answer. Now, I, I want to remind listeners that since we've had Katie on before, uh, typically in the show, we talk a little bit about how you got here. Mm -hmm. But I want to direct listeners to our blog post where they can check out your previous episode. Mm -hmm. But instead, we're going to take a slightly different route. And I want to ask you, you know, do you see yourself as being in academia and, and continuing on to push this, you know, 
choral research adaptation front, or do you see yourself taking a slightly different role? I do not see myself staying in academia. Uh, I love it. I love doing research. I love teaching uh, undergraduate students, but this is not really the life that I want. Uh, so <laughs> I, I really am passionate about, you know, education uh, and policy and management. So really taking this research that, you know, we're putting out there and putting it into something meaningful, whether that be, you know, educating the public about what's going on or taking that data and, and folding it into policy, you know, relevant policies or relevant management plans. And so that's kind of my next step of where I want to go after this. Hmm. Well, as this is... Uh, show about graduate students' stories as well mm -hmm. as their research. Um, can, let's talk a little bit about what you've done to move in that direction, right? So as, as graduate students, we're often we're trained by academics, and they often like to like make little thems. <laughs> yes. um, I think we all, any graduate <laughs> little student clones knows of that. themselves, right. yes. <laughs> so how, how, if you don't mind me asking, how has it been, you know, thinking about and planning for a kind of different step? Um, what was what was your first uh, move when you made you made that realization? So it was probably in my second year, right around the time I came on the show, actually, that I started taking classes that were outside of my discipline. So I looked into classes that were focusing on, you know, marine management and policy and, you know, the intersection between science and policy. And that kind of really opened up my eyes to, you know, this other part of, you know, what a PhD can get you. And so I started having conversations about, you know, some of the jobs, you know, post, um, you know, dissertation and what I can do. And and so, yeah, I, I'm very much interested in that. I've, uh, I did a graduate certificate in marine resource management, and so this was an 18-credit uh, certificate that really aimed at, <clears throat> excuse me, um, that really aimed at giving you a sort of uh, an idea of, you know, what sort of management is, what policy is, and how science fits into those different realms. And so that was a really good introduction. Um, but... Other than that, not much. Just trying to finish my PhD so I can get out there. <laughs> Just finish the PhD. Yeah, Just I know. No biggie. Yeah. Uh, so I am curious because we talked about this earlier, and you had mentioned some classes of which I didn't even know existed at Oregon State. I took a quick peek, and they sound really interesting. So I'm wondering if you could describe, you know, uh, a class or maybe an experience that you had in one of these classes that is a little bit away from the how to do lab work as a graduate student, how to do statistics as a graduate student, but instead how to make policy relevant. Do you yeah. have an example of that? So the one class that I just fell in love with was actually titled uh, Science and Policy. And there we really uh, kind of took apart a lot of the different um, you know, laws and acts that are out there currently and how science sort of influenced them in a meaningful way. Um, and so there was that class and there was also marine resource management. And that also was a really good introduction of how um, you know, we can take, you know, data science as well as social science and kind of, you know, fold it into um, a more holistic approach. Um, so, yeah, the, they all exist and they were fantastic courses. And I think it's important to note that for graduate students who, who are considering what, are, what is termed alternative careers mm -hmm. for us, um, there are other graduate certificates. I know there's one in undergraduate teaching. Um, yeah, the GCUT program. Yeah, yeah, so there's students in my program that are doing that. So there, there are resources. If, if you think you want to do something other than research and being an academic, there, there are programs like that. And you've, you had a great experience with this program. Yeah, absolutely. And, and that's a great point is that, you know, 
getting a PhD doesn't mean that you have to be a professor your entire life. There are other things that you can do. And, and that was really what, you know, drove me to this decision was that, you know, I love doing research, but I think that there's, you know, a disconnect between how we use that data and, and the literature and making it meaningful. And so that was kind of my, my initial brain thought. <laughs> um, well, so that's you, you, you enrolled in this program and you've taken a lot of courses and you've learned now a lot about science policy. Um, going forward, uh, do you have a plan for what will be your first step out of the realm of the, the PhD? Oh, that makes me so excited. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, there's a lot of really great fellowships um, for uh, post-PhD students. So there's um, the Knauss Fellowship, which really is a great introduction into um, you know science policy relationships. I'm, I'm guessing Knauss is an acronym for something. No, it's just um, it's just the name a last name of someone. Oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> a famous person. Wah, wah. Yeah. <laughs> I was thinking the same thing. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Uh, yeah, and so there's and there's a lot of these science policy fellowships that give you a really good introduction. Since, you know, I'm coming from a very science background, um, it gives you, uh, yeah, you know, a step forward into, into what you can pot- potentially do. So, you know, I recently went to a conference, and they described one of these uh, – uh, one one of these programs where after finishing a PhD, you actually spend a year with a congressman or woman, mm-hmm. and you're basically their mini science advisor. You're their little minion. You kind of uh, you describe you could science. Be a regular size science advisor. <laughs> no, but I'm short, so I call myself a minion. <laughs> uh, but you essentially are that that liaison between science that is maybe within your realm of of expertise, or maybe you have to kind of convert somebody else's science into a bite-sized package for them to understand and then potentially act. So um, is that something that you would be interested in or is there, you know, instead of with with a Congress fellow, you know, be somewhere else in, in policy? That fellowship is exactly what the Canals is, is that you oh. kind of serve as that science advisor for them, right? You come from the science background, and these people in policy are really trying to understand the science. And so you kind of speak that language. And so that's really how science is getting introduced into this policy and management realm is because we know how to speak that science language. And so one of the things that I really would love to do and I would really see myself doing is sort of being that intersection between science and policy and management. So bringing scientists, bringing managers to the table and trying to get everyone to speak the same language and really understand what's happening so that people can leave the table doing something, you know, an action item. So um, there's a really great organization called Compass that was started um, almost a decade ago now. And they do just that. So they really bring everyone to the table and really try to make something useful out of the science. So you want to plug in Compass a little bit more? Because I've heard really great things, maybe uh, who an organizer is or how to find out more. For those listening? Yeah. So Jane Libtenko uh, started Compass way back when, when she was in uh, uh President Obama's administration. She was head of NOAA. And um, so the organization does the, what I had just said, that they you know bring everyone to the table. And someone here at Oregon State, Karen McLeod, is the director of Compass. And she teaches some science communication classes as well as um, you know trends to help people uh, balance that intersection between science and policy, as well as we have Jane Limchenko here as well, which is a really great asset to the Oregon State community. So if you're into science policy, yeah. this is a good place Go to be. Go knock on her door. Right. Um, kind of a topical thing these right now with you know President-elect Trump taking over, and there's a lot of fear about what science will be in the next four years. So does that 
having started down this path and being getting ready to to jump into the science policy world, are you fearful? Um, do you is it is it time to avoid science policy? I'm fearful. I, I'm I'm scared for what lies ahead. That there are so many different areas of science that you know really involve itself with climate change, and uh, for Trump to surround himself with people that don't believe it is really worrisome. And I, I yeah, I worry that you know I may have a job, or even that you know corals may may not be able to you know have research on them, or even people you know supporting them. So it's worrisome, but. Um, you know, as soon as I get in there, I hope to, you know, make some change. So <laughs> so it's time to, to double down on yeah. efforts for the science policy inclined like yourself. Yes. And funding especially. That's what I, I hope doesn't get cut because we need the funding in order to do these, you know, big, you know, genome wide scale projects. And if that's not there, then we really can't continue down that road and find that question or answer to the question. You know, you, you mentioned doubling down, and uh, Scientific American has a really nice article talking about their. The title is "Dear Scientists, Our Government Needs You," mm-hmm. and, and basically saying now more than ever we need you to be able to communicate science to policymakers because of you know what happens if you don't double down. Absolutely. I mean, as a scientist, that is one of our roles is that we have a duty to communicate our science in a meaningful way. And so, you know, me just coming on the show here and talking about my research or someone going into a classroom and talking about it or even going all the way up to a congressman and telling them how their research is relevant to the current state of you know what's going on. That's our job. And that's what we need to be doing. And now is absolutely the time that we need to be getting in there and talking science. So, yeah. I think I am uh, more than willing to admit not all scientists communicate effectively. Uh, but there's classes that teach you that. There are, yeah. I, that's the thing, especially <laughs> at Oregon State, there are classes. And I think, uh, especially in academia, we are very much focused on yes. publish or perish kind yes. of mentality. And that was, you know, when I first came in, that was probably what drove me to want to communicate my science a little bit more because I didn't really like that. You know, of mm-hmm. course I want to publish. Of course I want to get my science out there. But I feel like we need to go a step further to communicate it, to make sure that it's, you know, being used meaningfully. So. All right. Well, we talked about coral reefs mm-hmm. and how, what the state of research on them is and how they're adapting. We talked a little bit about your future career as a science policy person. I don't person, know. Yeah. Advocate? Advocate. Advocate yeah. Yeah, that's a better word. <laughs> um, so here's an opportunity as a science policy, and I hope I'm not putting you on too much of a hot seat. (laughs) What can the listeners out there do to help with coral reef adaptation? Um, What do they need to know to, you know, if they care, if if you've, you've now tapped into their, 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 their hearts. Yeah, their hearts. I hope so. Yeah. What, what can the public do to kind of help ensure the survival of the coral reefs? Um, you can donate to my research fund, <laughs> first of all. Um, but no, I, I think education, you know, educating yourself about what's happening is incredibly important right now. I mean, there's a lot of false media out there and really educating yourself um, in the right way is a, is a great first step. Um, and then, you know, you know, if we're going to start talking politics, but, you know, you can start, you know, let's do it. Yeah, you, you can start calling, you know, your local um, congressman. You can you can start calling the local people here and voicing your opinion, voicing your um, your needs and your wants. Um, but, yeah. So then two follow up questions real quick. Um, if you're going to go get educated, what's a good place to learn more about what's going on with the coral reefs? If you went to one website, Oof. is there one? Um, no, maybe not easy. <laughs> One organization, maybe. 
One organization. Um, the Coral Reef Alliance is a okay. really great one. Um, you know, they're um, a very uh, mainstream, you know, not really biased, but they give the facts. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I, I'd say the Coral Reef Alliance. They're great. Okay. And what should I tell my congressman if I call them up? <laughs> uh, that they should. <laughs> if uh, they actually answer. <laughs> I guess I could email them too. Yes, you can. Yeah, I would tell them that, you know, we'd be, we need to give a little bit more attention to the science that is um, you know, surrounding uh, corals and uh, potentially maybe giving a little bit more funding to just science in general. Um, yeah. Very cool. You know, it's, it's funny you bring up the, the congressman idea and emailing them. I found out that the House of House, the Committee on House and Science and Technology, the, the main lead, Lamar Smith, had his office yeah. phone number leaked. And uh, I tried People calling. People have been calling. Yeah. I tried calling, but the voicemail box was full. So Ugh. I'll keep calling, I guess. Yeah. Well, good. <laughs> yeah. Glad it's full. I'm glad. That means that people are trying to make change, and that's good. Yeah. yeah. So I, I want to end with uh, with one question because we are coming towards the end of the interview, and this might be an unfair question, so you can feel free to reach across the booth and slap me in the face. <laughs> but you had mentioned that uh, you know publish publisher perish mentality in academia was uh, kind of pushed you away from that kind of lifestyle. So I'm wondering, what hurdle do you see going forward as a kind of science and policy advocate? And you know what what is one thing that you think you can help to overcome that hurdle? So I think the biggest issue right now is that, you know, scientists are sitting at one table and policy managers are at another. And so we're really not speaking the same language. And so I think going forward, you know, myself, I can help both tables, you know, move together and start talking. Um, But I think really the scientists really need to start engaging in a meaningful way, learning how to communicate effectively um, and learning how to reach out to multiple audiences. I think that that's really where we need to start. And that's where I hope to start as soon as I'm, you know, as I'm finishing up and and as soon as I'm done. That sounds great. I'm very excited (laughs) for you. Thanks. Awesome. Well, uh, as you know, having been on the show before, (laughs) we have two traditions, the first of which is that you, as a graduate student, give advice to yourself five years ago or to an undergrad that's interested in graduate school. And I think given the occasion that you were on two years ago and you gave (laughs) – I actually don't remember exactly. Do you remember your advice? I do. I think I I told everyone to get as much experience as you possibly can. Okay. Yeah. So now what would you give to your – what advice would you give to yourself two years ago sitting (laughs) in the booth – uh, should I tell you what I told you guys the other day? Well, uh, if you don't, you can say whatever you want, but I, there's one uh, that I think everyone should hear, which was your immediate reaction. Yes. Uh, my, what I would tell myself now is read. <laughs> to go back and read, read, read. Can I, I just want to say when we, did, when we met you before that we did the show and we asked this question, you said, quote, oh, God, read more papers. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Yep. So, that's, that's accurate. Okay. Yeah. I think every I like you, PhD student struggles with that. Yeah. I like how you have that in quotes, Steve. Oh, yeah. yeah. I, I quoted that. I, I loved it. <laughs> oh, God. Read more papers. <laughs> I, I literally have a, a stack of papers my advisor has sent yeah. me over the last month that is on the to-read list. I'll get to it. Yeah, I'll get to it. I've been saying that for the last two years. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> nice. Okay, so read more. Yeah. So the... Uh, the second thing that we have is to ask uh, our in- interviewee for a song of their choosing. Yes. So I'm curious to hear what song you chose and why. 
I chose the choral song, so this is actually the same song that I chose two years ago, and it's a really great clip about a little choral polyp uh, trying to educate people about what it is, as well as telling people not to step on it, that you know it is an animal, and it wants to live, and if people step on it, then it's, it's not going to. So I thought this was really cute. Um, it was a really great you know science communication post a couple years ago. <laughs> so yeah, that's my song. Awesome. Well... Uh, we'd like to thank you for coming on the show. Again, this is Inspiration Dissemination on 88.7. If you're interested in sharing your research, we are we have just sent out a call for more interviews. We're uh, taking guests. More <laughs> guests. And that's going to be happening in winter quarter. But uh, you can go to our website, our, our blogs at blogs.oregonstate.edu slash inspiration. And there there's a share your research tab where you can be just like Katie and come share your research. Awesome. Thank you again for coming on, Katie. Thank you so much for having me. I had a lot of fun. <laughs> and uh, the corals are going to make it. Yes, I hope they will. <laughs> <laughs> Would you step on a cat? No, you wouldn't do that. Would you step on a dog? No, that would be wrong. So please, don't step on me. I'm an animal, I'm a living thing Can't you see my beauty and the joy that I bring? Oh please, don't step on